0: Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Well, we have spent every Sunday of the year 2023 looking closer at Jesus's parables in the gospel of Luke. And more specifically, we have focused on those parables that are absent from the gospels of Matthew, Mark and John. That's included classic hits like The Good Samaritan the lost sheep and the prodigal son. It's also included deep cuts like the dishonest manager, the rich man and Lazarus, and the unjust judge. And today we'll read one final parable from this gospel of Luke. And while this one also occurs in Matthew and Mark, which sets it apart from the others, we're looking at it because it sets us up well for Easter next week. This morning's parable is the parable of the vineyard. And it asks one big question. How must we respond to Jesus's authority? So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, verse one. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we move ahead, let's pray. Father again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your Son Jesus. I pray that we would focus on your Son Jesus every day of our lives, but especially today on Palm Sunday, especially over these next seven days as we look forward to Easter. Remind us that the events of this week some two thousand years ago are the cornerstone of our lives now and the cornerstone of our lives and eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and for what you've done for us. That we remember it every week at communion, that we look up and see that cross above us and are reminded of the sacrifice that you made, the body that you gave, the blood that you spilled for us. Thank you that we can call you our Father, Lord God, because of what you've done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Spirit who indwells us. I pray that we would walk in step with your spirit and that your spirit would help us as we seek to understand your word this morning and as we seek to apply it to our lives well beyond this morning. Again, thank you for this time, this place, these people. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Luke chapter 20, we find Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was nothing less than God's city. It was the heart of the promised land that God gave to his people after centuries of slavery in Egypt. It's where Israelite kings like David and Solomon once ruled. It's where God's temple stood, got torn down, and then stood again. Entire Psalms are dedicated to the glory and the significance of Jerusalem. And if we look closer, the gospel of Luke has been preparing us for this moment. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 22, we read there, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem and then chapter 18 verse 31 and taking the 12 Jesus said to them see we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished something important is happening in Jerusalem it all comes down to this Everything Jesus has said and done will somehow, some way, find its fulfillment here in Jerusalem. And after all that buildup in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus finally arrives, he comes in with a bang. His triumphal entry is recorded in Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. Jesus received a royal welcome from the crowds, which we now remember today as Palm Sunday. But after that, Jesus issues a shocking prediction in verses 41 through 44. He predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, which would occur some 40 years later. And finally, and perhaps most boldly, Jesus enters the temple in verses 45 and 46 and kicks out those who sold sacrificial animals. So, how do you think the Jewish religious leaders would respond to all of this? If they've already been hostile toward Jesus throughout the entire Gospel of Luke, they can't be happy about what he's done now. And we see their response in chapter 19. Verses 47 and 48. And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. It's important to note that the religious leaders are no longer just trying to trip Jesus up with theological questions, riddles, or conundrums. They're not just trying to make him look bad. They are now seeking to destroy him. The tension has risen. So let's begin. Chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel... The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. A simple contemporary rephrasing of the religious leaders question in verse two May go something like this Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? What gives Jesus the right to elicit shouts of Hosanna when he rode into town? How does Jesus have the power to predict the city of God's destruction? Who gave Jesus the warrant to barge into the temple and throw his weight around? Who do you think you are? Of course, this question about Jesus' authority isn't entirely new. Jesus already discerned the religious leader's skepticism when he healed and forgave the sins of a paralyzed man back in Luke 5. The religious leaders wondered then, who does this guy think he is? And you know, a miracle like that, along with the numerous other miracles that Jesus performed right before their very eyes, should have already given the religious leaders some idea about who Jesus thinks he is. They should already have some idea about what kind of authority he possesses. But they rejected the evidence then, and they're rejecting the evidence now. The religious leaders are willfully ignorant as they ask Jesus who he thinks he is. So, rather than giving them a straight answer, which they would have rejected anyway, Jesus responds to their question with another question. Who do you think John the Baptist was? Now we all remember John the Baptist, right? He was the prophet who lived in the woods, wore weird clothes, and ate bugs, like many Baptists today. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I can say that as a former Baptist. He claimed he was preparing the way for someone greater than him. He baptized people for the repentance of sins, hence the nickname. And like Jesus, John the Baptist had his own run-ins with the religious leaders. And by asking this question, Jesus puts the religious leaders in between a rock and a hard place. They cannot answer this question without exposing themselves as either hypocrites or cowards. So when the religious leaders refuse to answer his question, Jesus refuses to answer theirs. At this point, he does not owe them an explanation about his authority. So with that, let's get into the parable. Verse 9. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard... and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him. They said to themselves. This is the heir. Let us kill him. So that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard. And killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard. Do to them. Let's stop there. If we consider some imagery spread throughout the rest of the Bible, this parable can be fairly straightforward. Who's the owner? The man who planted the vineyard. That's none other than God. We see God metaphorically planting a vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Okay, what about the vineyard? Well, it's likely some combination of the Jewish people themselves, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple inside of it. We also see that imagery in Isaiah 5, verse 7. All right, who are the tenants? Verse 19 tells us that the religious leaders see themselves in the tenants, and they're right. They were entrusted by God to shepherd and lead his people, with the temple playing a key role in that. Okay, who are the servants? The ones sent by the owner of the vineyard? Well, in Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus speaks of Jerusalem as the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. God sent many prophets to warn his people against sin throughout the Old Testament. And more often than not, they were maligned, ignored, and mistreated. A lot like the servants in this parable. And then finally, who is the beloved son? If we think back to Luke chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, We hear God refer to Jesus with that exact same title. Beloved son. So once you identify these various parts, the whole story starts to come together, doesn't it? The tenants rebelled against the owner of the vineyard. They mistreated his servants and they killed his son. And that story serves as a preview of the final week of Jesus' earthly life. The religious leaders have rebelled against God. They've rejected John the Baptist. And they will kill God's son, Jesus Christ. Now, let's come up for air for just a moment. And before we dive back into the parable... Let's think a bit more about where we left things. Let's think about more about that rhetorical question in verse 15. What will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants? What do you think he should do? What would you do? Honestly, many of us might say that the owner should have come down much harder much sooner. The minute that first servant came home with a black eye and no fruit, he should have fired those tenants. But instead, he gave them a second chance. And he gave them a third chance. And each time, the same thing happened. Some might argue that the owner was far too lenient with those hired hands. Or we could take a more positive view and suggest that the owner was astoundingly patient with those treacherous tenants. But now let's think about the rhetorical question again from verse 15. This time in light of the owner's beloved son's death. What will the owner of the vineyard do To those tenants. What do you think he should do? What would you do? The persistently brutal treatment of his servants was already bad enough. It was clearly a fireable offense. But then to kill the owner's son. That demands nothing less than swift and severe judgment. So Jesus answers his own question in verse 16. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. What do you mean, surely not? Of course, that's what he would do. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. At the end of the day, between the context of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem and the content of the parable of the vineyard, It becomes very clear that this passage is about God's authority. God's authority. The religious leaders rejected it. And they rebelled against it. Their plan to destroy Jesus is the most egregious rebellion of all. And they will be judged for it. In verse 18. The words broken to pieces or crushed, they can also be translated as shattered and scattered, shattered and scattered. When someone rejects Jesus, God's beloved son, Jerusalem's and the whole world's rightful king, the cornerstone who holds everything together, we too deserve judgment. We deserve to be shattered and scattered. That is what the religious leaders would one day get if they did not repent of their sin. And the same is true of us. So, before we get too excited and pile on to the big, bad religious leaders whom we Christians all love to criticize, we should know that they're not the only ones guilty. Of rebelling against God's authority. There were others tasked by God to care for his land, but instead chose to resist his rule and grasp for something that was not theirs. That time it wasn't a vineyard. It was a garden. That time it was Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve received God's judgment for their sin. And they were cast out from God's presence for rejecting his authority. But there were others. The people of Israel were chosen by God's grace to be his representatives in the world. But they didn't always trust God to provide for them. They weren't always content with God as their ruler. They began to feel entitled to what God had given them the people of Israel also received God's judgment. They spent time wandering in the wilderness, suffering under foreign oppressors, and were even taken away from their homes as a result of their sin, as a result of their rejection of God's authority. But it wasn't just the religious leaders. It wasn't just Adam and Eve. It wasn't just Israel. It's all of us in Romans one through three. The Apostle Paul shows that humanity in general has rejected God's authority. And like the hard-hearted religious leaders, like disobedient Adam and Eve, and like stubborn Israel, we too deserve God's judgment. Of course, we may hear these seemingly worn-out, irrelevant, fire-and-brimstone assertions, doctrines, and sermons, and ask essentially the same question the religious leaders asked back in verse 2. Who does God think he is to say this stuff? Who does God think he is to do this stuff? In the Garden of Eden, Satan asked a similar question. He casts God as overstepping his bounds. Who does God think he is to tell you that he can't eat that fruit? One definition of the word authority is legitimate power. Legitimate power. And God, as the creator and sustainer of the universe, has that legitimate power. Whether we choose to recognize it or not. That's who he is. And our only hope to avoid God's legitimate judgment for our sin, our only hope of not being shattered and scattered in eternity, is faith in the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus Christ. As we said, the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths in Romans 1-3, through establishing that all people have sinned. But then he says in verse 23, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word redemption in the ancient world was used in the context of the slave trade. If you wanted to set a slave free, if you wanted to buy their freedom, you would redeem them. But of course, that took a cost. That had a price. And that's where that word propitiation might come in. A propitiation was a sacrifice that averted wrath. That sent sin away. And we see Jesus as our propitiation, our sacrifice, our payment, covering the cost of our sins on the cross. Of course, we may hear this and ask as well, how can I trust that this God won't misuse his authority? Again, Satan in the Garden of Eden asked a similar question. He cast God as insecure, And power hungry. And you know, given the abuses and corruptions we see in our fallen world, it's a fair question. We're all too familiar with stories of people committing horrific offenses, crimes, and sins under the guise of authority. And why should God be any different? Well, first, God has a rightful claim to his authority. He did not acquire it through unjust means. And second, God righteously executes his authority. In his holy character, he can do nothing else. And if you hear this stuff and still have reservations about God's authority, maybe the word authority in and of itself makes you squirm. Then I'd suggest you look to the cross the same Jesus we've read about this morning. The one who refuses to answer the religious leader's question. The same Jesus who warns of God's judgment against those who reject him. It's not some egotistical, self-serving jerk. Look to the cross. Jesus suffers crucifixion in order that the same people who reject him might be forgiven of their sins. That is a man who can be, a man who should be worshipped, trusted, and obeyed. And of course, a third question. What is life like under God's authority? Again, Satan in the Garden of Eden asks a similar question. He cast God as oppressive and withholding. Not somebody you'd want to live under. Of course, nobody should promise you that life under God's authority is always easy. There are times when we might be called to deny ourselves. To give up our rights, desires, and priorities. And even suffer in obedience to this God. In Luke chapter 9 verse 23, Jesus calls us. To take up our crosses daily. But life under God's authority, while not always easy, is the only true life there is. A few minutes ago, we sang that God bids me come and die that I might truly live. We must submit to God's authority. It's the only right and just thing for people he made to do. It is something we have to do. But it's not just something we have to do. It's something we get to do. It's only when we submit to God's authority that we can live the life that we were made for. It's the only way of life worth living after this life is over. And ironically, it's by living in submission to God's authority that we find real freedom. In Romans 6, chapter 20, Romans 6, verse 20, rather, Paul says there, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things... It's death. Paul's essentially saying that living under your own authority might look good, sound good, and feel good for a while. But it's not going to work out well in the end. So he continues. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, living under God's authority isn't just something we must do, though it is very much that. It's something that we get to do. So, as we prepare for Easter Sunday, we should ask ourselves how must we respond? To Christ's authority. We must recognize him for who he is. The cornerstone. The cornerstone that will either hold everything together for us in this life and the next. Or the stone that will crush us. If we do not acknowledge his rightful place in our lives. Jesus is Lord and King over all. We cannot reduce him to an accessory to our lives. We can't treat him like a backup plan or a safety net. He must be central or else everything collapses. And if we try to relegate to Jesus to anything less than central, we will end up shattered and scattered. So this morning, by the power of the Spirit... May we repent of the ways that we might reject Jesus' authority. May we believe the gospel that he preached. And may we follow his lead, submitting to his good, holy, and rightful authority, which he displays in his cross and in his resurrection. We must submit to God's authority, and we get to submit. God's authority and that's when we truly live let's pray Father again thank you for this day thank you for this time that we have together thank you for your word thank you for the challenge of Luke chapter 20 especially as we enter into the week leading up to Easter I pray that your word would sober us, would refocus our eyes, refocus our minds on you, Lord Jesus, the cornerstone who holds everything together. I pray that we would recognize your rightful place at the center of everything. You are king, you are ruler, you are God, and you deserve our obedience, our worship, loyalty above anyone and anything else that might try to grab it from you. There is nothing else in this world, there is nothing else in this life worth worshipping besides you. So Lord, I pray that we would recognize you as the king and ruler that you are, and we would also recognize you as the suffering servant, our great high priest, our sacrificial lamb. You don't just claim authority for the sake of bossing us around. You don't claim authority because you need our reassurance or our validation. You claim authority because it's yours. And you claim authority because it's for our good. You expect us to submit to your authority because you love us. And because you know what's best for us. And because life only really, truly begins under your Lordship. So Lord, I pray that we would recognize you for who you are. Again, thank you for this morning. Be with us as we prepare our hearts and our minds for Easter. Help us welcome you as the King who you are. Crucified, resurrected, coming again. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.